Well, welcome again. We are really happy to see so many faces here tonight. Um, we've been going through the lectionary, as I mentioned, and part of what's great about the lectionary is that, that it plugs you into these passages, like I was saying, that we wouldn't normally read. But sometimes with the lectionary, it, it puts you at the end of a story, and you kind of got to know what happens at the beginning and throughout the middle of the story to really, I think, pick up and uh, get the full effect of where it places you. And so that is the case tonight. Our, uh, our, our scripture passage and our text for the sermon tonight comes from Job. And uh, I thought it would be helpful to at least give sort of a quick recap and catch you up to what's happening in those, we start in chapter 38, and what's happening in those 37 chapters leading up to where we start tonight. Now, depending on who you ask, Job is often described, I think, by many people as being either one of the most beautiful texts in Scripture, but also one of the most difficult and painful texts in Scripture, and, and that makes Job sometimes hard to comprehend uh, in a lot of ways. It's a very old story. Some people think that this is perhaps one of the oldest stories that was ever told, that was passed down in an oral tradition long before even Old Testament times. I mean, we are talking thousands and thousands of years ago when the story of Job is set. And there's this overriding theme in Job of just deep suffering, of long-winded dialogue, 37 chapters worth of it. And in the end, in my opinion at least, there are very few really satisfying concrete answers at the end of all this suffering. So let me kind of give you the quick recap of who Job is and what exactly happens to Job. At the beginning of the book, Job is introduced as a blameless and righteous man. And that's scripture's way of telling us, I think, that Job was a good man. In fact, he was the best man in all his part of the earth. And to go along with being the best man, Job also happened to be a very wealthy man. The text tells us that he had 10 children, that he had lots of livestock and servants, and that's scripture's way of saying Job was rich, because that equaled money back then. But he was also faithful. He was very faithful in offering praise and resisting wickedness, upholding righteousness, and offering praises to God. But for Job, in this story, it all falls apart. In the first few chapters, his world basically implodes in on itself. First, the neighboring people come into Job's land and to his area where he keeps those livestock and cattle, and they plunder everything he has. There goes his money. And then, in a tragic accident, all of Job's ten children die. And as if that wasn't bad enough for Job, he begins to develop these sores all over his body, these painful sores. And by the end of all this, Job's wife says to Job, why do you persist in faithfulness to God? She says, do you still persist in your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. Things get pretty bad for Job. And now three of Job's friends hear about all that's happening to him, and so they come, like good friends will, in times of suffering and need and pain, and they sit with him. And they each offer to Job an opinion for why he is suffering. And Job listens to them, and then he offers his own view, his own defense, sort of. And so there's this back and forth of explanations about why all this is happening to Job. 
And as I read this, you know, this is really the 36 chapters of the story. This is the meat of the story. Job sitting with his friends and them going back and forth. And I read and I think that it's a very human story, right? It's a very human thing to do. When we have someone in pain or if we know a friend or relative who's experienced death or who is in some sort of suffering, we go to them and we sit with them and it's natural. As humans, it's our natural uh, our natural inclination to try and offer an explanation to them about why all this is happening, to try and comfort them. And that's exactly what Job's friends do. They, they speak of retributive justice to Job. They speak of rewards for righteous and punishment for the wicked. And Job replies to each in due course. And as I said, he offers a defense and he laments his fall from wealth and good standing at the same time in these 37 chapters. And, though, and then we arrive at chapter 38. Everyone in this story has had an opportunity to share their opinion, to have their voice heard, except for one person. It's God's turn to respond now. So listen now for a word from the Lord. From Job chapter 38, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Job, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have an understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning so that they may go and say to you, here are we? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or Job, who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods cling together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie and wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young, young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, this past Thursday, I was on a plane coming back to Atlanta from a quick visit to my hometown in Ohio. And I should be, you know, very clear here. I'm still a five-year-old when it comes to flying. I still love to get that window seat and to look out that window. And our flight was delayed several after several times during the afternoon, and I think it was originally supposed to leave at four, and it kept getting pushed back and back. And so by the time we finally got on the plane, the sun was setting in the west. And so I'm sitting there in C-20A, and I'm looking out across the tarmac, and I can see out my window on the ground while we're still at the gate. I can see the details of the faces of the people who are working around the aircraft, getting it ready to go. I can see the buildings. I can see back into the terminal through the window there. And then finally, we taxi out to the runway and take off. And keep in mind, I'm a five-year-old. I love the takeoff. It's my favorite part. 
even for me, I've traveled quite a bit now, but there's still something really special about the takeoff. The engines rev up, you get pushed back in your seats a little bit, and then suddenly, everything begins to change. The ground out that window beneath you begins to push away. And the view through that scratched, clear plastic begins expanding outwards faster and faster. And the most amazing thing happens. Where only a few minutes before you were studying the details of individual faces there on the ground, now your view has given way to something that would be hard-pressed to describe to someone who hasn't seen it with their own eyes. Individual roads become these sprawling networks, connecting at points and then going off in all directions again to the horizon. I see how the river that goes through Dayton, I see that I, I drove over that river, and now I see how it connects further down to a lake, and then it connects to another creek, which connects to another river. And then as the sun begins setting off the other side of the plain, I begin seeing the masses of lights down below me coming to life. There were towns that were far off in the daylight. I couldn't initially see them because of the smog, but as the lights come on, I'm able to make out the form of all these individual towns all around, and I see the roads that lead into them. And perhaps I'm being a little overly dramatic here, but really, I, I never cease to be amazed by how quickly and how greatly everything changes out that window every time I take off, how rapidly my perspective expands, how quickly the lens through which I see the world takes on a totally new outlook. It's a whirlwind of changing scenery out that window. And it is out of a whirlwind that God speaks to Job in our passage tonight. I mean, woo, talk about dramatic entrance. First, God shows up in a hurricane, a cyclone, a whirlwind, and the voice of God comes out. Now, I, I don't know about you, but if I heard the voice of God in this manner, I would either be running really fast or I would have my throat in my stomach. God says out of the cyclone to Job, gird up your loins like a man. Listen up. One of the commentators I read in preparing for this likens this phrase, gird up your loins, to basically God telling Job something to the effect of, hike up that diaper, man. You wanted answers? Well, here they come. And come they do. But they're not the answers we expect. Nor do I think are they the answers that Job expects. As if this diaper talk isn't unsettling enough, at the surface, the response from God that follows is not that much different than the response that Job's friends had been giving him in the sense that it is a really unsatisfying response. I mean, Job is suffering. The man has lost all of his children, his land, his own wife is urging him to kick the can, to give up, to scorn God. He, I think, is experiencing some of the deepest grief that any human can possibly bear. And yet, God in this response does not address Job's suffering, nor does God offer any sort of explanation for Job's spurned sense of justice, of why all this is happening to him. After all, he's a good man. Why is he suffering like this? 
And so we're left at the end of our passage scratching our heads. What is all this talk of stars and rain and dust and lions and ravens? How does any of this address Job's situation? Well, I think God's response has an effect on a listener that is not all that unlike the effect that I had looking out that window on takeoff. God's response puts Job in a literary window seat, plucks him up out of the ashes and places him right in that seat and takes him on this cosmic tour of sorts, revealing through word images and sights that a pre-airplane, pre-Google map satellite view, pre-car, pre-highway man like himself could possibly ever imagine or know. God asked Job, Job, who laid the foundation of the earth, the boundaries of which no man, yourself included, has ever seen? And Job, I know that there isn't much light pollution out on your lamplit plot of land, and so you have a pretty good view of all those stars that form a dome of distant light over your head at night, don't you? So tell me, Job, do you know the number and name of each of those stars? Were you there to hear them sing together in joy on the day that I set them and all of creation into being? And oh, by the way, Job, do you know where your inner wisdom comes from? Are you the source of that wisdom? And Job, while we're sitting here gazing out this window, let me describe to you the lions and the ravens and the wild beasts of all sorts that live far beyond the horizon of your home. There is a world, Job, that you can scarce imagine. And who do you think provides for all of that? God uses words to draw a grand portrait of creation in all its vastness, teeming with life of all sorts. And in doing so, God reminds Job of his place. God's response breaks open Job's world like a kid looking out the plane window on their first takeoff, God opens Job's eyes to a larger truth. Did you hear the who's in God's response here? Who determined the earth's measurements? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts? Who provides for the raven its prey? God does. The who's remind Job and they remind us that God is ultimately the one in control. And yes, the wider world that is attached to those who's is wild and it is scary and it is different, but it is also good and it is beautiful. And I think that we 21st century Westerners like to think that we've seen it all with those tools like Google Street View. I sometimes just like go over to Europe and I plot my pen like in any town, Spain, and I, I check it out. I can see it right there at my desk. With Discovery Channel and shows like Man vs. Wild, they go to these really crazy places that I'm like, hey, now I, I feel like I know this place now. I've seen it. And we have these planes that take us high above the clouds and can deliver us to almost anywhere on earth. We have the internet and YouTube. We have people. Did you guys watch this last week? This guy who goes up in a capsule and jumps from the edge of the atmosphere. We have people who venture out to the edges 
of earth. And we like to think because of this that we've seen it all, that we know it all, that we've done it all. But then we go somewhere new. We experience for ourselves a new culture. We experience for ourselves something that is different than what we are used to, and we're surprised by the fact that we never knew this was here before. And afterwards, we come home and we're like, now we've seen it all. And then we're surprised all over again. These are windows that remind us that we are not the center of the universe. That's a hard thing to swallow sometimes. We are not the center of the universe. That our world is but a small piece of a much bigger picture. It doesn't mean that we are insignificant or that our problems or that our suffering is unimportant. They simply remind us of the who. They break open our worlds to a much larger truth, to a much wider view. At the end of my flight, I was looking out and we came from the western side of Atlanta and it was dark by this point and I looked down on Atlanta. And I saw the connector going north and I saw the cars crawling along it. I saw Midtown. I was able to kind of imagine the general place of where the church was. It's not as bright as some of those big buildings. I saw the state capitol all illuminated in the glow of light. Is that the wrong word? All lit up. Illuminated. I'm trying to think. I guess the state capitol can be illuminated. And so eventually we banked and we descended one more time and the big box stores and the distribution centers around the airport came into view and I was able to see the individual cars more clearly and the plane lurched and the wheels screeched and the view out my window was not that much unlike the view that I started with. Back to the real world. Back to the yet-to-be-written sermon. Back to the phone calls to be made, back to the to-do to list waiting to be checked off. Have you ever had that feeling? But you know, I haven't forgotten the view. And as I wrote down all this to share tonight, I wondered whether the communities that first heard the story of Job all those thousands of years ago who listened to the beautifully painted words of God's response, I wonder if maybe they eventually put the story down on paper because they didn't want to forget that view either. Job reminds us of the promise that even though we don't have that window seat all the time, even though we sometimes get mired in the view out our car window or the view of our computer screen or the view of the person in need, that there is a larger view that is still there. We are still part of God's bigger creation. God's view gives us a dose of humility, I think, and perhaps some hope as well, by reminding us that we were not there at the beginning of time, but God was. By reminding us that this world is not ours, it is God's. And that is good news. That is the good news. It's a humbling experience when you glimpse the who that is really in charge but it is also freeing to know and to trust that the one who created all that we can see and all that we cannot see, that that who is always in our midst. It frees us to grieve however we need to, just as Job did, 
but it frees us also to live life with thanksgiving and joy, to respond out of that thanksgiving and joy, to go about the work of addressing injustice, of addressing suffering, of dealing with our own suffering. It frees us. So keep your eyes open. Look out for a view. Find a window. And take that view in. Amen.